there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you want to be a journalist or a writer, or if you're interested in a career in artificial intelligence and robotics, then this is the episode for you. But before I introduce you to my remarkable guest, Gail Simak-Lemon, I want to make sure that you've all signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our free weekly newsletter that goes out every Monday to give Java Junkies a heads up on the five new episodes we're going to be dropping that week. And it is super easy to do. Just go over to the Time for Coffee website at Time the number 4coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you can check out the dozens of other episodes we've dropped, which are all organized by professional tracks, whether it's other journalists we've interviewed, those in international development, marketing and sales, IT, tech, computer science, or even those in the sports field. Now grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is the amazing, wise, courageous, and incredibly talented author, journalist, and storyteller, Gail Semak-Lemon, who began writing about entrepreneurship in conflict and post-conflict settings while she was still in graduate school at Harvard University. That followed a decade, during which Gail covered politics at the ABC News political unit. Gail has written not one, but two New York Times bestsellers, both of which I've read and highly recommend, including The Dressmaker of Carcana and Ashley's War, the untold story of a team of women soldiers on the special ops battlefield. Gail is also the chief marketing officer at the technology firm Shield AI, which stands for Artificial Intelligence, an AI robotics company that builds products for first responders and for service members in the U.S. military. Gail, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Awesome. As I was preparing for this interview, Gail, I have reached the conclusion that there is so much I want to talk with you about. I think we'd need to do three episodes. Here is the way I'd like to begin. Could you talk about how you are paying the bills as a writer, an author, and a journalist? And and I know that's one hat that you're wearing. How do you actually find your news stories? Yes. I mean, for me, I look for stories that I feel I am uniquely positioned to tell and that I think deeply, deeply matter and stories that have a theme to them, which is really about resilience and underestimated communities and people who find themselves in extraordinary circumstances and rise to the moment. And those are really the stories that fascinate me. And and, and they happen often to feature women, but that isn't ever what I set out to do. But I do look for the story that I, A, don't understand when I first hear it, and B, that I cannot stop thinking about once I do understand it. How did you find Camilla Siddiqui, the young woman who was an entrepreneur working in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, when the Taliban was in power after 9-11? I had gone to Afghanistan in December of 2005. So that was my 
winter break between my first and second year of business school. And I went to Afghanistan really to write about entrepreneurship because I was fascinated by this idea of entrepreneurship in the toughest parts of the world and why it mattered, right? When people were most in need of jobs and hope. And I met this young woman in the process of doing a a story on entrepreneur who was just absolutely a fascinating character from the first moment I met her. I walked into her office and she had this whiteboard and a filofax and and wraparound glasses and all of this stuff. And I just could not stop thinking about like, what would it be like to be this young woman who had figured out not only how to get her families through the Taliban years, but also how to use business to create jobs and opportunity and hope in a time when they genuinely did not exist in her neighborhood. And here was this young woman who had more or less become an entrepreneur during the course of the Taliban that only came out during our first interview. And you were interviewing her for a story for another outlet. Is that right? I was interviewing her for a case study for Harvard Business School, which I was looking for protagonists for, and a Christian Science Monitor piece that I was working on at the time. And I realized almost immediately that she didn't fit for anything I was working on at the time because she was just starting a business. She had a laptop and an internet connection. And she started speaking to me so eloquently about the power of entrepreneurship. And she said, and you know, for women, it's even more important because earning an income earns respect. And as soon as she started talking, I thought, you know, she sounds like, you know, Richard Branson. And yet here's this young (laughs) ever left Afghanistan, not during the Taliban years, not during the civil war, not during everything that has happened with her country during the Soviet invasion. And so she was and is a true patriot. And how did you find Kamala? I had had her information from several NGOs. I had done some conversations with before going to Afghanistan and be peace. This business council for peace said, oh, you should interview one of our fast runners, one of the young women in our program. And so they gave me a list of people to contact and she was on it. And so at what point and how long after you met Kamala did you start thinking, oh, my goodness, this could actually be a book? I came home from that first trip in 2005 and I was completely obsessed with her story. And then by 2007, I said, okay, I'd gone to Afghanistan again, I think two more times from there. And I was working in finance at the time. I had finished in business school, but I just kept thinking about this story and how is it that a young woman became an entrepreneur more or less because of the Taliban, right? Because the Taliban took away every other option. And here's this young woman who managed to become a breadwinner, not just for her own family, but to support families all around her community at an incredibly desperate time. And she had done so with real patriotism driving them and within the rules to the extent that she could stay within them. And so I wanted to share this story about this source of hope and opportunity and optimism in the middle of desperation and a young woman whose narrative flipped this whole victim story about young women in very tough parts of the world on its head and showed that not only were they not simply victims, these were young women who had been survivors, who had really invested in their own communities. And I wanted to share that story. So I called her and I said, you know, I want to do a book on you. And she said, well, have you done a book? I said, no, but we we can figure it out. And that was really how it all started. How hard was it doing the writing piece? I'm sure the reporting piece came easily to you, but how hard was it to write prose? The first time I did a chapter draft, I sent it to an editor and they wrote me back and said, you've just told the whole story in 1300 words. What are we going to do for the other 78,000? 
so I said, well, I guess I got to figure out that, that muscle, right? And so then I started doing the real mechanics of writing a book, which is for me, writing an outline, filling the outline in, diving into details, where is texture helpful, really just learning. It's a simply a different muscle though. And, and I do feel people get deterred, especially if you've never done it before. And they say, oh, it's too scary or I can't do it. And I would just say, there's always a first time for everything you do, right? So just get through the first time and figure out from there if you want to do it again. Did you get an advance for that book or were you I okay? I did, but I was working in finance at the same time. So I used the finance work at PIMCO. I was in working in financial services to uh, subsidize the trips because the advance was, wasn't negligible, but it certainly wasn't significant. So when did you do the actual writing? So I finally figured out that I would have to make a choice at some point because I was working, trying to write and work in finance. I was working probably 16 to 17 hours a day. So I would work from probably 4.30 or 5 till 7 a.m., go to work in finance 7 to 6-ish. And then I would try to write it again from about 8.30 till midnight. And after several months of that, you don't feel like you're functioning and prime fitness on either side, right? Either on the finance side or on the storytelling side. So PIMCO gave me two leaves of absence. And then eventually I just, I decided I had to leave because I was recruited by Think Tank World to counsel on foreign relations. And I knew that would give me the time and space to really promote the book because as important as it is to write a great book, you have to go out and sell it hand to hand, door to door. Also, if you want to write another book and people don't want to talk about this, but I think it's very important. The numbers are the numbers. The book has to sell. Yes. So speaking of hand to hand, Gail, the other incredible story that you turned into another New York Times bestselling book was Ashley's War. And oh, my God, Gail, what a story. During the TED Talk you gave about these amazing women, including Ashley White, you said they live in the and. You could love CrossFit and cross-stitch. You described Ashley as being a cross between Martha Stewart and G.I. Jean. I just love that. Can you tell us about Ashley and how you found her and her band of sisters, a story that shows all of us, as you said, that warriors come in all shapes and sizes? I pause only because it's been such a privilege to tell this story because of the trust which Gold Star families and others have, have placed in me. Ashley White is someone I found out about through a Marine. I was hosting an event on women in combat, which was not a subject I had ever studied or, quite honestly, done any work on or had interest in. And I didn't because I thought the whole idea of women in combat is just, you know, my eyes start to glaze over this whole policy discussion. Now, if you say I have a great story with incredible warriors in it, I'm fascinated. But the policy discussion is so removed from women's actual realities in service to this country that I think I fell victim to what so many of us do, which is, oh, women in combat, right? My eyes glaze over. And this Marine, I was hosting an event and she said to me, well, you know, it's like the story of Lieutenant White and all those young women who are on ranger missions. And I said, wait, what? Because I had spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and I certainly knew about the special operations community operating there and, and conventional forces as well. But I did not know that women were part of special operations mission. And this Marine said, oh, yes, you should look her up. And I said, well, what about the combat ban? And really, like my mother-in-law is from Texas. And when you say something stupid, she always says, you know, bless your heart. And... <laughs> 
it's Marines looked at me like that. Like, you know, like they wanted to say to me, bless your heart, but they didn't, you know, like, and they looked at me with kind of a mix of sadness and pity and <laughs> said, just go look it up and see what you find. And that was really the challenge. I, I looked up versus Lieutenant Ashley White. This was 2012. There was very little out there about her. And I was completely fascinated by this idea that young women had been on special operations missions as part of a team. I didn't understand what the team was or why they were there. And I called Ashley White's family and just said, I'm Gail. I'm a writer. You can look up everything I've ever done. I really want to come talk to you about your daughter and her story. And Mrs. White, who's just this incredibly strong woman, said to me, well, I was wondering when somebody was going to call how long did it take you to convince the White family and Ashley's husband to talk with you and share the story? With them, it wasn't a question of convincing because they deeply believed that she had done something extraordinary, that she was part of something extraordinary, and that they wanted her story told. The question was, was I the credible person to tell Right. And so it was really letting them see how serious I was, that I deeply believe in sharing her story the right way, that I was not trying to make a spectacle or sensationalize, but simply to take people into that world and that they could look up everything else I'd ever done. They read Dressmaker, right? I mean, they're they're smart people. They could do their own work. They could figure out whether I was the person that they were going to trust. And they decided that they would trust me with the story. What do you want your readers to take away from the book? Humanity. I really believe that storytelling is the way we take away the other. It's the deotherization tool that works. And I want people to see what we are asking of young women and young men who sign up to serve this country. I want people to see what folks on the other side are facing in very tough parts of the world. With Dressmaker, I wanted people to see what it was really like to be a teenager up against the Taliban and the world's indifference as they set out to take care of their families. And I want people to rethink their stereotypes about how we think about women in difficult situations and in difficult parts of the world. What did you learn about yourself in the process of reporting and writing these two books? So much. I mean, I really do mean it's a privilege. You know, in Dressmaker, we had very tough security situation. I mean, you know, we knew about people who were getting taken, that things were blowing up. There was a situation where foreigners were getting shot on the street. One of the incredible people in the Dressmaker story, her family member had gotten in front of a gunman who was trying to kidnap French NGO workers and gotten killed himself. We so often forget about how courageous people are on behalf of protecting others in difficult parts of the world. So it was very deeply personal. The security situation was gut level for all of us who were working on that. And and I think I just was so humbled by the courage of everybody I worked with that I tried to live up to that. And that really was such an education in grace. And on the side of Ashley's War, to be inside special operations world, inside this the world of these young women who didn't trust anybody to tell their story and who only really talked to me because of Ashley and because of Mrs. White. I think that sense of responsibility infused everything I did and it also made me deeply committed to reminding America that less than 1% of this country has fought 100% of its wars for 17 years with precious few other people paying attention and that America's national security 
should not be a country club sport. It is something that belongs to all of us and is a responsibility of all of us to engage. And Ashley's War is going to be turned into a movie, right? It is in the development process now. We have an amazing team. And yes, I hope to have news very soon for your listeners. Yeah, it's been an incredible process. Oh, that's just so exciting, Gail. I'm so thrilled for you. You are not only a wonderful journalist and author, but you're also a businesswoman. Can you talk a little bit about the latest hat that you're wearing as head of marketing, as a chief marketing officer at Shield AI? Yes. And maybe just in broader terms, I went to business school because I believe that business is the force shaping the world for better and for worse. And that for me, I wanted to understand why business worked the way it did, both from job creation and also from the impact that it was having. And I think that going to Harvard Business School was such an eye opener for me. You know, I didn't grow up with anybody who had a professional job in the truest sense of the word. You know, everybody I grew up with worked hourly and was working overtime to really do the best they could to make ends meet. I I didn't really know what a white collar job was until much later in life. And it really taught me both about the power of going to work and about the power of a good job to create dignity for people's lives. And so I had understood it from that that side, then seeing it from Afghanistan once I was in business school and from other tough parts of the world, the power of business to make a difference. And so that's why I worked in financial services right out of business school. And it's why I work Shield AI now. And Shield AI is really a company whose mission is to create artificially intelligent systems to protect service members and civilians. And it's probably the only private sector I could have taken where everything I've done until now is fully relevant. And I would just say for your audience, look for a team you believe in. Do not be afraid of rolling up your sleeves and doing the work that business roles require and bring your creativity and your whole self to your job. Mm, Absolutely. Gail, you gave a truly inspired commencement address recently in the spring at Metropolitan State University of Denver, which I highly recommend that Java Junkies watch because Gail has some wonderful words of advice for all of you. And those words came from the Mother's Club. That was the (laughs) community of single moms that raised Gail. And I loved so much about it, Gail, and one of your lines will be truly forever sealed into my memory. Don't ask for a seat at the table. Build your own table. Before I ask you to share the five lessons you learned, Gail, could you share with Java Junkies what the table was like that you grew up around? We all sat at the kitchen table as kids listening to our moms who were all working at least one job, usually two, none of whom had graduated from college. And they just taught us how to work, how to handle everything that came with grace, how to have real community. I mean, the kind where if you need a cup of milk or a babysitter or something is going wrong in your day and you need to call somebody and have them come pick you up when your car dies on the Washington Beltway. I mean, these were women who were really there for each other. And that community and that sense of perspective and that work ethic And that deep belief in the power of getting up every morning and fighting again for something better for your kids was something that that really, I think all of us who grew up around it were shaped by. Mm. And so what are those five (laughs) lessons that you hope Java junkies take to heart? 
Well, uh, maybe I'll just do a couple. It says five seems like a lot now that we're on this podcast. But I would say this. My grandmother used to always say, this too shall pass. So she would talk about always the power of perspective. And I remember just everything being so stressful at 23 when I was trying to figure out, do I stay in news? Do I take this job? Do I go to ABC? Do I leave CNN? And my grandmother would always just laugh and smoke her cigarette and say, you know, this is all, you know, I would never go back to being your age because it all was so dramatic. And she said, no, this too shall pass. And so that always stayed with me. And it's true. The second thing is my mother used to always say, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. And it was not very funny when you're seven, but it is very useful later in life, which is that whatever it is, most of the time that you think is so dramatic and so important, have some perspective, right? Tomorrow is going to be a new day. Figure out your own problems. And it's not an intractable issue that you're facing, right? It's not a major world tragedy. It's a challenge to overcome. And, you know, there was nobody who was allowed to feel sorry for themselves in my house growing up. And, and I guess my aunt who is not my aunt by blood, but is really my aunt by love, always has this phrase that, that stayed with me when I called her and I was applying to business school. And I said, I'm just, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to get in. This is totally stupid. I don't know why I'm trying to do this. It's too big. I said, and everybody's telling me I won't get into Harvard. And my aunt said, never import other people's limitations. And I think that especially for young women, there is not a mute button that is big enough for me to tell you to tune out what other people are telling you, right? Listen to yourself, trust yourself, want what you want for yourself and do not apologize for it. And that is not a message we give young women enough. Hallelujah. And your mom was an incredibly hardworking person. She worked at the phone company during the day and she sold Tupperware at night. Yeah. And you tell the story of when she was dying of cancer, and that was around the time she gave you the, on a scale of one to 10, you're maybe a three. She applied for food stamps and you were feeling very understandably embarrassed. I mean, you're yeah. a, a young girl. I mean, I think it would be embarrassing or potentially embarrassing no matter what your age to think somebody you know who doesn't receive food stamps might see you going in to redeem them. What was that like? Yeah, I was, I think, 12 at the time. My mother was sick with, uh, at that point, stage four breast cancer. She was diagnosed at the age of 33. So I just urge everybody listening, take care of your health from a young age, because you just don't know what is going to come your way. So I was 12 and she had a great job, a union job, right? This is in a time when union jobs actually could protect people. Full 100% health was covered, you know, so we had, we were actually protected in large part because of her union benefits, Communication Workers of America. And we went to apply to, to get food stamps because assistance was running thin and we were running very low on cash. And my mother never really talked to me about it. So I didn't know how stressful the situation was. But obviously, if we were applying for food stamps, it wasn't easy. And we walked in and I said, you know, I'm so embarrassed because I knew a lot of kids. I, I went to PG County Public Schools. I knew a lot of kids on public assistance. And it was not something anybody wanted to be on, right? And I knew all these kids who were embarrassed about getting free lunch. And I was, I could have qualified for reduced lunch. I just didn't use it. And so 
I was, I said to her, I said, Oh God, you know, like, I hope nobody sees me. And I was really embarrassed. And my mother was like, you know, she had no time for it. You know, you do what you have to do to take care of your family. It wasn't like she wanted to be there. She had worked since the age of 19. She had never thought about public assistance, but we needed it. And at that point, she was not above doing what was required to take care of her family. And that was a lesson for me to never be too proud to do what's required. Gail, very quickly, you were the first in your family to go to college. You went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Do you remember what extracurricular activities, if any, you were involved in or jobs that in hindsight you look back on and say, wow, that really helped me hone skills that were useful to me as a professional? You know, Missouri is different because the school owns a television station and it owns newspapers, it owns all kinds of things. So you have to work for free as part of your undergrad. And I covered politics for the last two years of my undergraduate experience in Jefferson City in Missouri, mid-mo, as we say, right, mid-Missouri. And first of all, what an incredible experience to actually work while you're studying, to make all your mistakes, or at least a lot of them, right at the outset, before you're getting paid by someone else. And second of all, just to get the experience of going into public officials' offices and asking questions. To do that while you're still in an undergraduate in study was great preparation for covering Congress, for, for working in politics, and now for really working in policymaking. You know, I'm, I'm adjunct to Council on Foreign Relations. I do a lot of policy briefings around Syria and other work, and it was just an incredible baptism. Amazing. Two quick questions. One, can you share a story with us? of a time that you struggled, Gail, when you weren't sure how you were going to get through the other side and how you did. And then final question is, if you could go back to the University of Missouri and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Okay, so the first one is about trying to write this first book. So I had a friend who was an incredible guy who worked on The Wire and all kinds of other things. He connected me to his agent. And I had this idea for dressmaker, but I I really didn't have it well formed. And I wrote to him so excited. He said, Oh, send me your stuff. You know, let's see what there's something there. And he wrote me back this rejection letter that I still have somewhere that said, you know, you have made a career out of defying the odds. And I'm sure this time will be no different. But I do not see anything here that would become a book, nor do I even see a nugget that has promise of becoming a book. And that was for dressmaker. And I felt like I had been gut punched. You know, here I had this access to this incredible person who could have changed my career in my life. And he just basically hit zero on the, on the value on the judge meter. And I just went home. I went into my bed. I watched Law and Order for probably four hours and then got up the next day and started again. Mm. But yeah, rejection is part of it. I want every one of your listeners to know you will face rejection and you will face failure. And what matters most is how you get back up. I am with you. In terms of advice, I actually don't believe in looking backward. I really don't believe in regrets. And I don't think there's anything I would have told myself differently because it's all part of the journey, right? And I just want your listeners to know, no one has all the answers. No one has the ability to, in hindsight, say, if I just moved this piece on the chessboard, it all would have been perfect. Every day you ask yourself, is what I am doing where I should be? Am I taking care of what I need to take care of? And am I leading myself to where I want to land? Do not ever become too lazy to ask that question and you will do fine. 
Well, Gail, you have done more than just fine. You have had a phenomenal career and much more lies ahead, I have no doubt, including a new book. This story is based in northern Syria and focuses on what ISIS is leaving in its wake. Can't wait to read it when it comes out, Gail. I wish you continued happiness, fulfillment, success in all that you do. And thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Java Junkie community. Pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.